This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil examine Kevin McCarthy's announcement of an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden, assess the world's growing climate disaster, and look back at September 11th and discuss the connection it has to our current democratic struggles. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Politics Lab. My name is Bill Muck, and I'm a professor of political science at North Central College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Phil Barker, who's a professor of political science at Keene State College. Hey, Phil. Hey, Bill. I, I don't mean to pick on you, but we talked last week about how we had technical problems, and we did again this week. <laughs> and I'm not going to point any fingers, but there is one of us who seems to be the, the cause of all of the problems each week. There there is a trend and the problem is this week i didn't notice when we the previous time we taped until like three minutes in so we were having some really good banter and kind of getting the episode going and then i realized that it wasn't taping anymore so now i am watching the clock phil if it stops i'm stopping us so <laughs> oh technology is is it's fun and we actually have gotten a we have a pretty sophisticated setup here we've done this for a number of years and we've kind of figured things out good mics and good recording systems but sometimes it's just the little things that catch us well and sometimes like the, we don't we can't figure out what's going why this can this problem that continues to happen to us but uh Again, it's one of us that continues to have the problem. So there's, there's a significant chance it is user error, I think. So <laughs> this is the older you get, the more you realize that these problems are not the computer's fault. They're, uh, yeah, user error, my fault. So we're still recording. So I'm feeling good about this episode. So, so one of the things I initially brought up in that first episode, like seven minutes ago, was that <laughs> there's a new haunted house in New York I'm very excited about, but I will not be attending. And in the advertisement, they suggest that you bring a spare pair of underwear phil is this something you're go- you're closer to new york you could you could work your way down to manhattan and go check this place out no i have i have no interest in that whatsoever <laughs> i i mean excuse me um yeah it's uh it, it uh, we we were talking about when the recording cut off that i i have never found haunted houses particularly fun uh because life is scary enough as it is and so the idea of like scary <laughs> movies and haunted houses does not appeal to me but if i did go to a haunted house especially it feels like the one the the ones today are especially scary i do feel like the i i would need multiple pairs of underwear that is, that is i would not handle it well i would not go over well with me <laughs> no i i, I when i was younger i used to enjoy haunted houses it was a fun thing to do and fall to go and all of that but now like any sort of change you know and, and i i think haunted house is like the extreme form of change where they're coming out and startling you like i just can't handle that anymore like you know if i'm sitting out watching my birds in the backyard i don't want any kind of interruption right so a haunted house is like extreme version of interruption i i don't think i would handle that well either an extreme so. version of interruption that you like pay for and go out of your way to experience <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. So, yeah, no, say, yes, absolutely. So so we'll both be passing on that. But our listeners in New York should should absolutely check it out and let us know how it is. For sure. For sure. So as I coughed my way through the the intro a minute ago, I it made me think about our So you're you're back in school. You've been teaching what, three or four weeks at this point. Are covid numbers exploding on your campus or is it not really a big deal at this point? 
uh, sickness is back. Mm. Uh, I don't know if I don't think anybody's testing for COVID yeah. anymore. I think it's just everybody is sick, and you hear these coughs in the <laughs> hallway. You know, it's like these whooping cough coughs, and and uh, students have been out. Yeah, so like that first, it was usually like the second or third week that we started to see students go down, and then you saw the masks come back up in terms of students in class, probably because they're sick. So I haven't seen any data on COVID, um, and it just feels like as a society we're no longer measuring other than like we're measuring fecal matter in the rivers apparently i guess you know that's we're still measuring that and that looks you were, high you were but, doing uh, that long before covid right that was like a hobby of yours <laughs> personal interest of mine yes um so it sounds like covid is up uh but uh it feels like just people are just like yeah it'll be yeah. fine we'll kind of you know push through it how about are you are you seeing any good data there no but i mean i, I hear people like my students talking about how everybody's getting covid or everybody's getting sick or whatever but yeah i I don't, I haven't seen any official numbers, but yeah, I I do have the student, like I had a student come into my office hours today wearing a mask and I was immediately, I didn't ask, but I, I it's like the, the, the trauma sort of comes back quickly of, of thinking about, uh, how I feel about being in a, in a room. I, it's, I appreciate that he was uh, willing to wear a mask. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it feels like you're right. We're just plowing ahead and, and and we'll see how it goes. So, yeah, well, well, they've got the new vaccine out. Uh, and so that, you know, I certainly think I will, I will do that. I do all of the vaccines, but they were talking about, you know, whether there was a potential shortage and they had somebody on saying that it was like way less than 50% of Americans got the last uh, Mm. booster, right? So it feels like Americans are done with COVID and they're done with getting the boosters, right? It's just like, you know, we're, we're, we're fine. It's the new flu uh, shot, which feels like it's a smart idea, but not like a requirement unless you have, I, that's not I'm, <laughs> that's yeah. not my take on it. It feels like that is that is the uh, the the sort of public perception of it now. Yes, yeah, no, I I, I love a good shot. Like I'll go get the flu <laughs> shot. I'll get the the COVID shot. You get if it'll keep me healthy, I'll I'll take it. So I don't ask questions about what's in it. <laughs> no, no scary, no haunted houses for you. But as many vaccines as you can get, you're you're officially entering old age now. That's exactly right. Yes. Now I just got to find some more comfortable shoes. So, (laughs) all right. Well, before we dive in, we got a number of really interesting topics today. I'm excited to kind of kick these around. You want to remind everybody how they can stay connected with us? Yeah. So our our webpage is thepoliticslab.com. And uh, you can go there and find uh, links to relevant articles from this week's episode. Um, We've got a couple of good articles uh, this week. They're all linked there uh, for easy finding. You can also um, on thepoliticslab.com find links to all of our social media, to our email addresses um, and and whatnot. It's your your one-stop shop for all information related to this podcast. That's fantastic. All right, Phil, we are going to start with the democracy and impeachment. We're going to work our way all the way to 9-11. You want to dive in? So this week, Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, announced that the House would launch an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden, something you've been calling for for a long time. (laughs) I'm I'm pro-vaccine and (laughs) pro-impeachment. So this impeachment inquiry is an act that has the support of essentially all the Republican nominees for president, despite no evidence of any wrongdoing by Biden um, and numerous investigations that have already been put in place looking into Biden. Um, This impeachment inquiry is a great example of Republicans failing the test of the loyal opposition, which in politics essentially means having the willingness to lose elections and accept the result. Um, 
Harvard political scientists Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zablat, who we've talked about extensively on this podcast. We talked about them um, last week. Uh, they describe these sorts of acts as semi-loyal, in which politicians pay lip service to the norms of democracy, but are unwilling to take the hard step of standing up to would-be authoritarians, either because of self-interest or cowardice. Um, this week, Levitsky and Zablat wrote a piece for the New York Times looking at the role of these so-called semi-loyal Democrats, not like not big D like the party, but small D like democracy in the in, in the role of these semi-loyal Democrats in the process of democratic breakdown. They point to the recent Republican debate as an example where candidates were asked if they would support Trump if he were the nominee, even if he were convicted on charges of attempting to overthrow the last election. Asa Hutchinson was the only candidate on stage who did not raise his hand. Levitsky and Zablat explained that, and this is, this is a quote, behavior like this might seem relatively harmless, a small act of political cowardice aimed at avoiding the wrath of the base. But such banal acquiescence is very dangerous. Individual autocrats, even popular demagogues, are never enough to wreck a democracy. Democracy's assassins always have accomplices among mainstream politicians in the halls of power. The greatest threat to our democracy comes not from demagogues like Mr. Trump or even from his extremist followers like those who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, but rather from the ordinary politicians who protect and enable him. Uh, Levitsky and Zablat go on to use historical illustrations. It's really a brilliant article. They look at France in the 1930s, where the, the um, parties sort of failed to stand up to would-be authoritarians. Spain in the 1980s, where they successfully did so. Brazil just last year, um, all to illustrate their point. So, Bill, Republicans have had seemingly countless opportunities to do the right thing, support democratic norms, and rid their party of Trump, but they have consistently failed to do so. So, you know, what can our listeners take away from this piece on, quote, semi-loyal Democrats? And what does it tell us about the impeachment inquiry into Biden? And why is the Republican Party having such a hard time doing the, you know, the loyal yeah. thing? Like, where, where do you want to go with this? Let's start with the, the concept that they develop in this article, and then maybe we can transition to talking about the the impeachment inquiry and what all that means. But yeah, this is, you know, we, we try to give our listeners a lot of good readings, and this one isn't very long, but it's really, really powerful in terms of this this concept of, are you a loyal Democrat? And, and again, you emphasize the small d Democrat. Are you a loyal supporter of democracy? Or are you a partisan, right? And so these these semi-loyalists are ones who claim, and they're they're, for the most part, they come across as normal politicians. They dress, they wear suits, they appear to be a conventional politician, but they're unwilling to support democracy when really push comes to shove. And I think what's really interesting and what the listeners can take away from the, the big picture article is that demagogues are dangerous. So somebody like Donald Trump, uh, you know, Erdogan, we've seen lots of populist demagogues through the system. Are, they are dangerous, but they need support. And you read that quote in there. In fact, when I was reading the article, I pulled that out and I pasted it into my notes. And then I saw that you already had included it. It's, that's the key, right? So it's not just that you have the populist demagogue trying to, to gain control and push the system in a more authoritarian direction. You need enablers. You need individuals who will say, I'm going to... I'm going to put my loyalty to an individual, you know, Donald Trump or whoever, over my loyalty to a democracy, right? And I, I think we tend to think if we just get rid of the dangerous populist demagogue, this problem goes away. And what they're saying is that we also have to think about where 
political parties are, uh, where our mainstream politicians are. And one of the, the most pernicious things that's happened to the Republican Party is that they are now enabling uh, this sort of authoritarian populist demagoguery behavior. And right. And so the problem doesn't just go away if you get rid of Trump. You also have to address that that belief within the broader party. Right. So I, I just think that's such a such a big idea. Um, what are your thoughts? And then we can, we can get to the impeachment example in a second. Yeah. I mean, I th- the fascinating thing, I mean, the, the two of them have been they have this new book coming out called The Tyranny of the Minority, which kind of relates to what we talked about last week about democratic institutions and why, you know, American democracy is struggling. So they've been making the rounds. They've been doing lots of interviews and um, they've been talking about how even they so they wrote the how democracies uh, fail or uh, die, sorry, um, uh, yeah. uh, in I think 2018 or something like it's, that. It's, so it's, yeah, been, a it's while, been a while, yeah. but they were talking about how even, I mean, it, it like perfectly predicts kind of how the last, you know, 10 years and you know, seven years or whatever in an American democracy have played out. Um, but they acknowledge that even they didn't anticipate just how bad it would be and, and how dangerous Trump would be. And, and the main reason is this, right? They had the expectation that the Republican party would have more pushback against his worst impulses. And, and instead, you know, we've seen this you know, throughout all of these, like really, I mean, countless opportunities, but some really big and obvious ones, it, you know, the, certainly the impeachment, uh, op- the opportunity to impeach yeah. Trump after January 6th was like a simple one where Republicans could have very easily sort of have been done with it. Um, you know, moving on, uh, in the nomination process, standing up, just, you know, again, refusing to say that they would support, it's not, it's, it shouldn't be hard for someone to say if, you know, Donald Trump is in, in prison is if he's been convicted for uh, <laughs> attempting to overthrow democracy in the United States, then I'm not going to support him for the presidency. Um, and, and they can't bring themselves to do it. And, and my, you know, I've been teaching in my, you know, my intro classes, we've been talking about collective action problems and collective goods, these, these situations where, um, you know, what's best in the sort for everyone, if everyone, you know, everyone can acknowledge that sort of getting Trump to, I think most Republicans, most establishment Republicans would say the Republican party would be better off if, if they could sort of move on from Trump, but each individual is, is sort of unwilling. It's, it, it takes a risk for an individual to stand up and say, I'm not going to support him. Um, and so what you end up with is everybody pursuing their sort of self-interest and, and the collective good, the thing that, that we need, um, is, is, you know, uh, destroyed, right? We, we can't, we can't seem to move on from Trump. Um, my, my temptation is to say that that's like human nature, but I think that's what's so brilliant about this article is that they point to all the times where that hasn't played yes. out, where people, where politicians recognize that democracy is more important than winning, right? It, it is that ingrained notion that democracy means that you sometimes lose and democracy and the contest and, you know, having this, you know, coming back around in four years to run again, um, is the, is the bigger and more important picture. And it feels like the Republican party has lost that, right? This is when you, when you get to the point where winning at all costs is all that matters, then, then you kind of move on from what's the democratic thing to do. But, um, it's, yeah. it's shocking, especially to see like Mike Pence, right. Who, who, whose life was put, you know, who was on the line on January 6th still say that even if Donald Trump is convicted for what he did on that day, I'll support him as the presidential nominee. It's, it's really <laughs> mind blowing. 
Well, because it's good politics in terms of it's it's likely to get them to whatever position they want, right? It's likely to get them reelected. It's it's electorally successful, but morally corrupt, right? Because they all know. I mean, most of them. Matt Gates maybe doesn't know, but most of them know that Donald Trump is a a danger, a threat to the democratic system. But their short term political interests uh, are more important than the long term small d democratic interests, right? And 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 you you highlighted this, right? So the they in the article they talk about a number of different times, right? One was the election, right? When the election was done and it was clear that Trump had lost, Republicans had a chance to say, nope, um, you lost the election. The second time was with the impeachment. They had ability to remove him. They didn't do it then. Uh, They talk about the third time with the January 6th commission. They could have had an honest effort to say, let's look into this. Uh, And what I, I think is so interesting is the fourth one they cite is things like the debate. When you actually have a chance to say, would you vote for somebody who's been convicted of a felony if it's Donald Trump? And they all, except for, you know, one or two say, yes, we will do that. Right. So each individual time Republicans have a chance to distance themselves, uh, but they prove to be semi-loyalist to democracy. And I think that's uh, it's just it's it's really, really, really telling. And, um, you know, there's a number of great passages in this reading. But one, you know, they talk about what loyal Democrats expect is that loyal Democrats, again, not big D, small d, expel anti-democratic extremists from their ranks. They refuse to endorse their candidates. They eschew all collaboration with them and when necessary, join forces with ideological rivals to isolate and defeat them. And that last point, I think, is really important. If you are a loyal Democrat, supportive of democracy, you will join with the other side to defeat those who want to undermine democratic principles. And that has been nearly impossible for the Republican Party to do because they realize if they do that, they have very little chance of of being reelected. Yeah, I mean, it, we've we've talked about uh, Levitsky and Zablad in the past. I mean, they talk about they go through examples of of in their in their writing yeah. where they talk about other countries where that exact like you were saying exactly played out where conservative parties rather than partnering with the sort of extreme right wing will side with people across yeah. the aisle right with with liberal and socialist parties to, b- because standing up for democracy is is the the right thing. But yeah, I mean, it, it does. It feels like our, our system has become, I mean, I realize people have been sort of making this critique for a long time where, you know, doing the right, ideally a, a system should be one in which a candidate runs on the things they believe in and they win or they don't win based on that. And so, you know, you want to be responsive to the people, but it, it feels like candidates, and I think in both parties, but I think very clearly in the Republican party right now, um, you know, prioritize not losing over over uh, doing the right thing, which is again so ironic given the history of the you know the relatively recent history of of character matters in the Republican Party and, and you know talking about it that way. But yeah, I mean, the impeachment inquiry is like the perfect example, right? In which Kevin yes. McCarthy, I think I, he's been all over the place, right? He's been critical of Trump. He's been a, he's been a sort of a, a Trump lapdog at other times, um, mostly that. But you know, he it feels like he's doing this essentially to appease the the you know the kind of more radical wings of his party he's he's got a you know relatively small minority he had a contentious uh, rise to the to the speaker position but again, like ideally, you should have somebody in the speaker role who would say, no, we're not going to do that. And if you want to remove yes. me as speaker as a result, then fine, do it. But but you don't just collapse and cower to whatever the, you know, yes. it takes to stay in power. That That's again, there's there's like no virtue in that whatsoever. 
Yes, 100%, right? And this is, this is such a good example of that because there are even members of the Republican Party, the Republican House right now, who are saying there's just there's just no evidence here, right? There's no there there. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly Hunter Biden has done things, uh, illegal things, and there, you know he should face his day in court and will. But there's been no evidence to connect Joe Biden to that. And Republicans are saying as much. Uh, but it doesn't matter because Kevin McCarthy realizes his his hold on the speakership is tenuous. And so he needs to to placate that. So he's being a semi-loyalist. He knows that there's no real grounds for impeachment of Joe Biden. And the, the effect of that is to further normalize Trump, right? We we impeach Joe Biden just to say that, hey, everybody's playing politics. None of these impeachments matter. Um, and, and Trump is just part of this broader dysfunctional political system instead of being one of the key problems, right? And so it's it is. It's. I understand why McCarthy is doing it, but it is. It is anti-democratic in the sense of trying to support broader democratic norms. It is. It is particularly frustrating to watch the Republican Party, where again there are all these reports behind the scenes of, like you said, Republicans who recognize this isn't great. This isn't. This isn't good. Our party needs <laughs> yes. to move on. Republicans who, after January sixth, acknowledge that Trump was, you know, in the wrong, and and even many of them openly, right, in the speeches right after, and then very quickly cave, again, not because their mind has been changed, not because Trump has a compelling case, but because they're afraid to face voters based on it. And and again, you would hope that the types of politician we were, we politicians, we were drawing and rewarding were the ones who, again, were, were making a stand based on values they believed in and, and whether they win or not is not prior is not, you know, they want to win, but yeah. winning is not the 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 only purpose of being in politics, and it feels like that's it's, it's yeah. I, I, we've talked to two uh, two in the past about like whether it is public opinion that drives the positions of politicians, or whether it is politicians and the things they say yeah. that drive public opinion. And and I think political science I, I think says a little bit of both, right? But this is a perfect yeah. example of where you know you you it, it can feel like at an election in, in a Republican primary debate, you know, if you raise your hand and say, or you don't raise your hand, you speak out and say, I'm not voting for Trump, that that might end your you know, chances of, 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 uh, winning, but most of them aren't going to win anyway. And, and right. if it, it, you have, you know, primary voters who are watching that, having a series of leaders, a series of people who, uh, you know, voters are already drawn to and interested in who are speaking up and saying Trump is, is bad actually does. It may not single-handedly swing public opinion against Trump or against the sort of populist movement. Um, but there is this sort of compounding effort, compounding effect. And, and it's like everyone is afraid to be the first one to take that step. And and when McCarthy refuses to take that step, it sets a pattern, right? Yeah. I mean, because he could he could have a little bit of political backbone to say, I'm not going to entertain this, right? And we've seen some politicians throughout history do that, to say, like, I get that there's there's a public desire for this, but there's a role for the party, right? Levitsky and Zablat in, in, the, in their first book talk about this, that, you know, we can't expect the voters to always be rational, right? They will easily be persuaded by populist demagogues, but the party should have the ability to step back and say, we are not going to entertain that. And it's a useful check on, on the populace at times. And right, so here's a moment where McCarthy could be that check to say, no, we're not going down this impeachment line because there's just there's nothing there. You know, if there's some evidence, we'll revisit it. But he's so worried about his own political future that he's willing to do this. And what's going to happen is that 
you know, the Freedom Caucus is, is pushing them on this and then they're going to push them on the uh, on, on keeping the government open, all of these things. Right. And then you become you fall you fall into this trap of all of these sort of poor policies, anti-democratic uh, positions, because you're so afraid about your own electoral success. It's a it's just a it's a spiral into a really bad place. It's back to the minority, like the, yes. you know, the, the minority, the tyranny of the minority that we talked a little bit about last week. Right. Where you have this sort of extensive power given to the most extreme uh, candidates. I mean, that's been kind of a theme we've talked about, you know, over the past few weeks, whether it's like social media and the impact that that has on on sort of elevating those uh, those extreme opinions, whether it's the institutions of American democracy that help reward those more extreme opinions. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's again where the the uh, there's nothing that is stopping the Republican Party from doing the right thing um, other than the Republican Party at this point. And it may not even be good for the Republican Party in the the, the next elections, right? right? I mean, it is people it, from polling. It does not seem like I mean, people do not see a connection between Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, and they they see that as you know, this is that Hunter Biden's a flawed individual, but they're you know they do not see this as being connected to Joe Biden. So it's likely to hurt, especially those candidates, uh, Republicans whose district voted for Joe Biden, right? I mean, those are the individuals. There was eighteen of those who, if if they go ahead with an impeachment, uh, this is this is going to be really really difficult for them to hold the house. Yep. And and again, we're going to I mean, this is, uh, you know, I, I, we need to move on. But today, Mitt Romney announced that he's retiring from the Senate. Right. Yes. And this is an example of where our system is not designed. It's, our system is not designed to reward the moderates, but uh, the American population is not structured to reward moderates right now either. Yes. You know, it would be an ideal world in which the, you know, the Mitt Romney's the loyal Democrats, right? You don't may not yeah. may not agree with him on policy, but he's going to say democracy is important, and I'm going to push back again. You know, the Liz Cheney's of the world or whatever, they're getting pushed That's out, right. right? They're gonna we're gonna see fewer and fewer of those in the system. And, and it's going to make it even harder to to sort of push through these difficult times. In some ways, it doesn't matter what happens to Donald Trump, right? If you've, if you've created that norm within the party, it's hard to move on. Yeah. So, all right, well, well, we will sort of revisit this later in time. But for our second topic, we're going to talk about the weather. And Phil, if this summer has taught us anything, it's the age of climate change and climate disaster is here. Uh, this last July was the hottest month in recorded history. Wow. Uh, but the heat data does not tell the whole story. Uh, Alice Hill has an article in this August issue of in the August issue of Foreign Affairs detailing the scale and scope of the extreme weather we've experienced just this year. For instance, she notes, quote, for 31 days in a row, Phoenix, Arizona recorded temperatures above 110 degrees Fahrenheit, heating pavement to the point that people and pets skin burned on contact. Temperatures reached 122 degrees Fahrenheit in southwest Iran, forcing the government to declare the public holiday, declare public holidays because it was simply too hot to work. In August, the much-anticipated Boy Scout Jamboree in South Korea was cut short with hundreds of teens falling ill from the heat. Uh, with warmer, wetter conditions uh, allowing mosquitoes to flourish, the worst recorded outbreak of dengue fever has swept Bangladesh, leaving hundreds dead and medical providers overwhelmed. Uh, smoke uh, from Canada wildfires, which raised territories the size of Greece, forced millions of Americans and Canadians indoors to avoid respiratory illness. Uh, fueled by gale force winds, wildfires devastated Hawaii's island of Maui, killing at least 114 people. So, you know, the pace at which climate is changing has been sudden and shocking. 
something driven home this week with the devastating flooding in Libya, where more than 5,000 are reported dead and 10,000 missing. The rain came down so fast that it caused the collapse of two dams, after which the water destroyed anything in its path. Uh, Libya's National Center of Meteorology, Meteorology reported a record, a record 24-hour rainfall of more than 16 inches. Uh, the United States itself has had been hit by 23 large-scale disasters just since January, uh, and hurricane season is far from over. Phil, it feels as if the conversations about climate change need to become much more serious, uh, much more quickly. In that Foreign Affairs article, Hill notes that as civilizations, that as a civilization, humans now face the reality that they must adapt or die. Uh, the scale of the climate catastrophe suffered throughout this year reaffirms that it is no longer sufficient for governments and policymakers to focus on mitigation, but instead on adaptation, upgrading infrastructure and policies to withstand this extreme weather. Uh, Phil, we've been teaching about climate change and how it's going to impact the world for over a decade. Yet for much of that time, the impact was not being directly felt. This summer has changed all of that. So how are you thinking about climate change and our ability as an international community uh, to respond to this challenge? Well, I mean, this is uh, this is why I don't need to go to haunted houses, right? The world is scary enough <laughs> yes. as is. There's enough to terrify me out there. But yeah, I mean, it really is remarkable. I mean, you, you and I have been uh, professors for less than 20 years. Um, and, and in the, that 20 years of time, like watching the 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 debate and discussion change from like you know is the this debate about like how extensive is climate change what are its causes to like yeah. where we are now which is like there's there's no denying what we're what we're going through and that it's only going to get worse right it is remarkable to yeah. see how quickly these impacts have hit um and uh, i mean i th this is I, I think uh you know there's this question of sort of like how is this a, a political science topic right this is you know environmental yeah. you know climate change stuff but this interacts this impacts politics in so so many ways right and and um <clears throat> i think the the argument uh that that the article makes is really compelling which is that it it is you know it, it feels like we're still talking we're still trying to find international consensus on mitigation like how do we reduce you know greenhouse gas you know emissions for instance and we're well past that point right that is i mean that needs to be done it needs to be addressed um but we're at the point like the article talks about where there need to be much more extensive conversations about how do we live in a world where um, human life is essentially always in danger from climate itself, whether that is heat, whether, I mean, the, the Libya, I mean, the, they got almost yeah. as much rain in 24 hours as they typically get in a year, right? So the, these abnormal, you know, weather occurrences are, are only becoming, um, more and more common. And, you know, political scientists have talked about this for a long time. The U S military has, has been focused on climate for a long time because of the security challenges, right? The, like, you know, when you live in a place where, um, you know, there people, there's, there's not enough food, not enough water, or the heat is overwhelming or there's flooding or whatever that moves populations. It pushes people to their limits. Like it's going to cause wars. It's going to cause conflict. Um, and so from a security standpoint, this is going to become in increasingly, uh, I think the focus, I, I think the next hundred years of international politics, climate change is going to be the big issue. Um, but the article talks about like, you know, there's going to be beyond like dealing with population movements and access to resources. Like it's going to push 
the international community to have to develop ways of working together, not just for mitigation, but in terms of like providing, you know, right now getting aid to Libya is virtually impossible because of the political situation there. But even if, if that weren't the case, like there has to be cooperation across, you know, national boundaries on, you know, responding to dealing with, um, disasters like this. And it just feels like we are wholly unprepared and unequipped for what is coming along those lines. I, that's all very bleak. I, do, you, or do you have a more optimistic, uh, uh, take on things? No, no, I think right now, I think the, it is, it is bleak, right? And I think we, we have to become much more serious about thinking about the problem and and you noted the distinction one between saying all right we've got to reduce greenhouse gases right we've got to we've got to try continue to redouble our efforts and and you know the international efforts to do so whether it's you know the Paris climate accord and the and the subsequent meetings of that have been marginal, right? Even the best estimates of those global agreements uh, don't address the the real need, right? So, you know, two degrees Celsius or 1.5 degrees Celsius is the goal to say we can't get much warmer than that. And and the best estimates from, from all the country pledges aren't going to get you there, right? So there's got to be more work on the international front. But to the second thing you said, really about adaptation, right? So we, as an international community and as, as sovereign states, need to think about how do you upgrade your infrastructure to handle these new weather patterns, right? And that's the thing that that sort of shook me about Libya is that two dams, and, the, and again, they were older dams, they weren't for particularly strong dams, but they were overwhelmed. And when things like that happen, that's when mass death and destruction occurs. So, you know, even within the United States, thinking about infrastructure, you're going to have to adapt and spend billions and billions of dollars preparing for those kind of experiences, whether we're talking about fire or flooding all of that. I mean, I think about Phoenix. When I first heard that data point about the however many days, what was it? Uh, uh, 30 some odd days. days were the old? Yeah. yeah uh, 31 days above 30, 110. Yeah. When I first heard, I heard them say 31 days and I thought they were going to say above 100. And then they said 110. I thought that's that's just uh, that's pushing the bounds of human existence. And, right. I, I don't I don't want to live in Iran where it gets to 122 degrees. Right. That's, um, you know, you're you're so dependent upon energy at that point to have air conditioning that we are you you enter a precarious place. I, yeah. All of this is. So, no, you're not being overly dramatic. I think this is. This is the issue for the 21st century, right? Everything else will grow out of the challenges presented by climate change. Yeah. And Phoenix is the fifth largest city in the country, right? I mean, that's, I use that example yeah. about like there's, they're running out of water. You have these incredibly high temperatures. And at some point though, that, that's, that's going to become unlivable. And what do you do when yeah. you have the fifth largest city in the country? You know, we, 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 this is an example of where I think the U S often looks at much of the rest of the world and we see refugee crises and we see, you know, famines and all of this other stuff. And it feels like, I, I, I think about, um, you know, Robert Kaplan wrote this article, the, the coming anarchy, probably yeah. 25, 30 years ago, yeah. <laughs> um, talking about how climate and, and essentially environmental scarcity was going to be the defining feature of the kind of post-Cold War world. And and it seemed a little alarmist or extremist at the time or whatever, but now it seems almost naive because he he argues in that article in that article, for instance, that the the wealthy countries of the world, the the US's of the world, will be able to will have the money, the resources yeah. or whatever to sort of withstand the the worst impacts of climate. And and you know much of the developing world will will um you know pay the the price, right? We, you know, when when Manhattan goes underwater, we'll build, you know, 
levees and dikes or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, that seems like that, that seems naive at this point, right? Like this year has made it clear that like there's no escaping this. Like no matter how much money or infrastructure you have, when you're dealing with unlivable temperatures, when you're living with, um, you know, uh, massive wildfires, extensive droughts, like that, it's not something that can just be, you can just buy your way um, out of. And, and it feels like, you know, this, this is, you know, the thinking about how it, it feels like we're still stuck, you know, I was gonna say 25, 50 years behind on where we should be doing, uh, you know, about stuff like this. Cause I, I think about even like the U S like what we're doing now, um, it's, it's noble to focus on, on, uh, you know, solar panels and green energy and electric cars, and that's all good, but we need to be thinking about, like it's time to be thinking about the yeah. the levees and the dikes and insurance programs and and moving massive you know groups of people because at the rate it's going this is not a you know hundred years from now problem this is a this is a near future problem that we're looking at. That's right, and the idea of the movement of people, right? I think both within the United States but also globally, right? right. We are as climate continues to hit, we're going to see populations move from one part of the country to another, right? I mean, is, is you know, will Phoenix continue to be able to operate at, at that size with that many people? Or do people start to move in different directions? I think about, you know, Texas and Florida with hurricanes, right? If, you, if you're living in that area and insurance companies say, we simply can't cover you anymore. There's too many hurricanes. They're too big. It's too expensive. Do we see a movement there, right? I mean, is it, so we, within the United States, it is likely over the next decade that we're going to see some population movements. And globally, it's going to be even bigger, yeah. right? Because there are parts of the world that don't have the resources to to have the infrastructure that the United States does. So that's what's going to lead to these sort of massive movements of people and to conflict and to other issues, right? When when you have, you know, masses of humanity crossing international borders. And I mean, also thinking about um, our, our first topic, you know, we think about uh, democracy and, and populism and anti-immigration thinking like, you know, this is only going to put more stress on those arguments, right? As as people continue to flood in from other parts of the world into Europe and the United States, uh, there are going to be politicians seizing upon that, saying, like, look at the other coming into our country, mm -hmm. right? So it's it makes the domestic politics much more difficult, right? So I think that's why you're right to say that climate change is the the variable that is going to drive so many other conversations and and factors in, in, in international and domestic politics for the next decade. It's, it's a really, it's an interesting, like, kind of case study or, I don't know, kind of... Uh, um, mental uh, uh, problem to sort of think through about yeah. like the fundamental, you know, what, what is it uh, is human nature, you know, fundamentally good. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Because this is, you know, humanity under pressure is what we're going yeah. to see. And there's, you know, there's one scenario in which it brings people together, right. Where we talk about like developing, you know, international ties to, to try to combat um, climate change, trying to come up with solutions uh, and, and, you know, working, working together collectively as humanity to take this on. And then there's the flip side, which is, the part you're talking about, right? Which is that, yeah. um, when, when scary, I mean, that's, that's the Robert Kaplan argument, right? That when, when resources become scarce, when life becomes hard, uh, it's only going to get uglier, right? You're, it's going to exacerbate nationalism. It's going to exacerbate, uh, you know, violence. It's going to make people more willing to turn to violence. And, and it, it's, you know, there's part of me that's, that is hopeful that, that it brings people together. But, um, I, I, you know, I, it depends on the day you ask me, I guess, about whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic about, um, the impact this has on, on, you know, politically speaking on, on humanity. 
Well, it could be both at the same time, right? Yeah. I mean, I think you're we just in the last couple of years, you've seen an acceleration in terms of investment in clean energy and technology, right? And there's some really, really exciting things going on. Things when I when I delve into that literature, I think well, this is great. Yeah. Like we've got smart people thinking about how we solve the problem. At the same time, China continues to increase the number of coal plants it has, right? right. So you, you're gonna have both things where you're gonna have some people trying to solve this problem, other people trying to not solve the problem or exploit the problem, and then it will be it'll be hit and miss. Right. I think we're likely to see parts of the world that that climate change is devastating to and other parts of the world that will limp through. And then you hope as a a civilization we can eventually figure this out. But, yes, it is uh, it is both optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. Right. Depending on what you look at, you can feel very differently about the the world that we're operating in. Yeah, I think you're right. We talked to I feel like several months ago about the you know, there's there are all these kind of sort of un uh, it's not that they're unforeseen, but they're not necessarily on people's radar when they think about climate change. They think about some of the stuff we've talked about. But, you know, we talked about several months ago about the idea of um, uh, spreading stuff in the atmosphere basically to block yes. sunlight and yes. how that, you know, presents sort of new forms of international conflict as well. Right. So as countries start doing what's best for them, how that raises tensions as well. So even the optimistic part, the, 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 you know, humanity finds solutions to deal with these things that those solutions raise their own problems and, and cause tensions on yes. of, of their own kind as well. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just such a complex, complicated, uh, you know, problem that, that we're facing. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's, again, I think about like in the future, people looking back at us and, and, uh, you know, this like inability, uh, I, I can just imagine, you know, future humanity being shocked at, at, at our unwillingness right. to act sooner on, on something that is such an obvious issue. Yeah, the only I guess the only positive thing to wrap on is the end on is that it, we're seeing some of the effects now. And so maybe that will be a motivator, right? Yeah. It, you know, before when it was all hypothetical, it was it was there wasn't much effort. And now that, that states and, and individuals around the world are feeling it, maybe that will be the the impetus to actually continue to move. And I'm curious to see, we talked about the Republicans in the first topic, whether whether you're gonna see some movement there, right? Are, are, are they gonna continue? Does that party continue to deny climate change? Or do they come around and say, no, no, it's existing and we need to think about addressing it? Because young Republicans are there. Right. You know, I talk to my students, my young Republican students, they all see climate change as a challenge, right? And and that this is a nonpartisan issue. So the, the party as a whole, I think, has to get there as well. For sure. And there, there's also, you know, the, the economic and so even if you want to be cynical about people's motivation, the economic incentives start to change as well, right? Yes. And that um, you know, you, it's going to become profitable to invest in green energy and that it's going to make yeah. sense to to take some of these cl- climate mitigation um, uh, steps. I, but uh, uh, yeah, it's it's just so hard to to, to deny any anymore. But, um, but yeah, yeah, it does feel like a a generational shift will happen. It's just a, it's just a matter of, you know, whether it's too late at that point. That's right. Right. All right. Well, we should uh, move on. So for our final topic, we're going to reflect on the recent anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, uh, 22 years now, uh, to think about the way in which that those events and all that followed shaped our current democratic dysfunction. Now, we grappled with this topic two years ago on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, but given all that has transpired in the two years since, we thought it was worth revisiting, specifically to talk more directly through the connection between 9-11, the Iraq War, the January 6th attacks, and the authoritarian drift of one of America's major political parties. On the days after the 9-11 attacks, the country was deeply united, united against a foreign enemy that we spent nearly 20 years trying to destroy. Yet when those wars didn't go as planned, we ultimately turned against ourselves. 
Uh, this week, I find myself read, re- reading an article from a couple of years ago by Cynthia Miller Idris, uh, where she catalogs the explosion of far-right violence and the normalization of the extremist ideas that drive it. Um, Now, there are a lot of factors that explain the growth of the extreme right in the United States, including a reactionary backlash to demographic changes, social media, and rising belief in conspiracy theories. Yet she also points to another factor, and she writes, quote, In the wake of the 9-11 attacks, the rise of violent jihadism reshaped American politics in a way that created fertile ground for right-wing extremism. The attacks were a gift to peddlers of xenophobia, white supremacy, and Christian nationalism. As dark-skinned Muslim foreigners bent on murdering America, al-Qaeda terrorists and their ilk seemed to have stepped out of a far-right fever dream. Almost overnight, the United States and European countries abounded with precisely the fears that the far-right had been trying to stoke for decades. Phil, I've started to think when future historians write the history of the last 20 years, it will be hard to ignore the deep connections between 9-11 and ultimately January 6th. Do you do you see that connection? Do you see that as all kind of one historical art? A hundred percent. Yes. I mean, I think this is like the September 11th sort of marks the beginning of a new era of American politics. Um, uh, and, and I think there's so much about what we struggle with today that can be traced back to that. And, and you are you've kind of pointed to you know the 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 kind of white nationalism um you know the the xenophobia the christian nationalism part of it and i think that was in some ways the the most readily it was the earliest to kind of become clear right you saw this shortly after september 11th with spikes in in anti-muslim hate crimes and all sorts of other stuff the rhetoric i mean you and i have written papers on this the rhetoric that Mm -hmm. american leaders were using the 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 surge in sort of biblical reference references and whatnot by by politicians all you know were were really apparent in American politics sort of right from the start and so you know I think all of this this you know again the 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 fear of the outsider the way that shapes you know how we think about things like the defining you know kind of political discourse of the last 20 years about what it means to be an American was set against you know brown people from from somewhere else right and so I think that very much plays on it. I think it shapes how how people view themselves and how they think about you know what it means to be American. Um, patriotism, like the the level of patriotism and that that sort of like unquestioning support of things, um, you see that play out after September 11th. Um, I, I think about you know the ways in which some of our core beliefs. We talked in the first topic here about like selling out our values to in order to win. Um, that's a trend that you. I mean, I think there's been a long history of that in the United States, but you can see that with like the American embrace of, of torture and all sorts of other things after September 11th. So all of these, it's kind of moral compromises that we made, um, that, that sort of take root there. So I I think all of that kind of nationalism, the, the sort of, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the, the kind of rotting of our, of our kind of core values, you can see play out. The other part of it, I think, is that when I think about the last 20 years, right away, like all the, you know, all the, whether you're looking at Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders or whoever, all of this, it's, it's been this kind of story of economic stagnation and of, um, ineffective governance. So we talk a lot about like the internal divides that contribute to that, but it's also important to recognize how much of our resources, like how many, you know, 
you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars that were spent on war efforts in that time um, that didn't go towards, you know, improving American, like American lives in the day to day, right? Like during this time, we've spent you know, sort of inconceivable sums on, on fighting wars overseas while, uh, you know, the, the, uh, at, at home, the minimum wage has stayed basically has stayed, you know, stagnant. We've had this like, you know, growth in, um, <clears throat> in, uh, income inequality. And, and, you know, when, when you look at going back to Levitsky and Zablat, right? Like when you're looking at like the forces, the things that cause, populism and lead people to be resentful of the system, this is the perfect recipe for it, right? It is a system that's not working for people, a system that is like inefficient at getting anything done to improve the lives of Americans. And so a big part of that, I think, is this kind of lost decade and a half of American governance that was focused not on the United States, but but focused internationally. And so, yeah, I mean, in so many ways, I think you can look to September 11th as kind of sitting us on a trajectory of, again, sort of, you know, nationalism and xenophobia, but also the, the, the kind of, um, uh, uh, the, um, <clears throat> the ineffective governance, the sort of diversion of resources to something else, all of that kind of leads to Trump, right? Even the, the, you know, the, the kind of the extremism of the Republican party in opposition to, you know, Barack Obama, right. Has its ties yes, very yes. much to, to race and to, uh, and, uh you know, him being a Muslim, yeah, right. All yeah, of that. All yeah. of that. So, yeah, I mean, is that, are there things that I'm not thinking of as well that you've thought of? No, well, I guess the one thing I would say is that after 9-11, and, and some of our listeners who are younger, like our students right now, they were just basically born after 9-11. So it's it's a whole new reality for them. But but some of our older listeners will remember the, the clarity, right? So 9-11 happens yeah. and the world was divided into good versus evil. And the United States was good. And those who carried out these attacks were evil, right? And so there was this moral clarity and I think that's so important to understand this as well, right? Because the United States was good and we were we were going after the evildoers, right? And George Bush, in some ways, was the perfect president for that mission because he saw a world uh, divided between good and evil, right? And he, there was almost like an evangelical religious, I mean, there was to his policy, right? We were going to spread democracy and, and vanquish evil. And so that was the mission. And then you go out and do that and you do it in Afghanistan and you do it in Iraq. And, and then those things don't turn out so well. Uh, and then you, like you said, you have an economy that struggles, right? So if this country that is so good, so beautiful, so patriotic, so, you know, exceptional suddenly can't win a war, loses another war. Um, suddenly, you know, it's, it's, it's people are struggling, struggling economically. You're, you're looking to find somebody to blame, and for a lot of years, it was like there was a simple narrative. It was it was it was, you know, terrorism, but really Muslims. Right. That's where a lot of that, even though both George W. Bush and Barack Obama tried to push back against that, that was one of the narratives that the far right gravitated to. So that's out there. And then comes Donald Trump and he elaborates this and he says, who's you know, why are why are we really struggling it's because there's an internal enemy, right? So he sort of flips it and says, it's it's also Muslims, right? Because remember, he wants to ban Muslims, but it's also, it's an enemy within, right? And so he kind of takes that to the next level, turning the lens on America, saying that it's it's evildoers within the United States that are causing all of these problems that explain the bad wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and your crappy economy and all of those things, right? So yeah, like you, I just see this, this through line through all of it uh, that, you know, 
January 6th makes sense if you think about 9-11 and what comes afterwards. It is really fascinating to think about uh, Trump's message and what like makes him so popular. And it is essentially those yeah. things that we've been talking about, right? It is that uh, it's this us versus them, right? Is that foreigners are bad, right? America is being taken from us by, you know, by uh, people who don't look like us. And also that the government is, you know, not doing anything about it, not doing anything to help improve your life. I mean, he, he latches on to those two things themes and it's what brings him into power. And then you, you look at like, again, the stuff that we, how those things continue to sort of grow and, and kind of metastasize, right? You get to the, the pandemic and, and those messages sort of fit oh, right yeah. in and strengthen it as well. And that there's, you know, the economic downturn, but it's also, you see with Trump, the sort of pointing at China and outsiders and all of this other stuff. And yeah, I mean, you were talking about like our students, you know, our students were born after September 11th, but I mean, that's what I come back around to. Even when I teach about like, like populism or the rise of Trump is, is that it is understandable, right? For people who are, you know, for 20 years, right? some people who have lived their whole lives and, and all they've seen is I, I asked my students, like, what has government, what has the U S government done for you? Like, what has it done to improve the lives of Americans in any sort of real way in the last 20 years? And, and we, they can point to certain things, right? Like there are these particularly, you know, like legalization of gay marriage and stuff like that. Um, Obamacare, but in the grand scheme of it, like when you look at the big picture stuff that we're not living through an era in which government is improving the lives of Americans for the most mm -hmm. part. And, and so you've had economic crisis, you've had the 2008 economic crisis, you've had the pandemic, you've had all of this stuff, all of these bad things that have happened and, and not a whole lot good. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think a lot of that, obviously the pandemic is not a result of September 11th, but that sort of negative response to the pandemic sort of has its roots again in this kind of, you know, in the, the xenophobia, the economic stagnation, the belief that government is corrupt and, and all of that. Yep. It's really interesting. And that, that makes me think of like, so then the, the extremist groups that grow out of that, right. The, those, the violent far right, the proud boys and all of that. I mean, it's a, it is a massive movement and it's in some ways a diverse movement on the far right there, but those groups some not, I mean, totally ironically, have embraced the tactics of the jihadi groups that they most reject, right? So they're now saying that the situation is so dire that we have to use violence, that we may have to embrace, they wouldn't call it terrorism, they would call it liberation, revolution, right? But right. I mean, they are, they're saying that they have to attack this government, they have to do whatever is necessary uh, to to preserve their way of life, right? To make America great again. Uh, and that is very similar, I mean, to the messaging you saw in a lot of Islamic extremism, right? It was that this new world that we're entering is so dangerous that they were reactionaries, that we need to go back, take the world back to a simpler time, pre-technology, pre-globalization, pre-all of this, right? So so both of these movements are trying a reactionary in the sense of trying to go back and even though they would hate each other if they were in the same room, um, they're deploying much of, they're, they're, they're in some ways a mirror image Their of each other. Their worldview is very similar. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you're yeah. exactly right. Yeah. I mean, and we haven't even, this doesn't even get into like thinking about, you know, go the tie the talking about um, you know the the sort of the Proud Boys and whatever um, kind of made me think of also like the explosion of like conspiracy theories in American politics yeah. as well and and the the sort of the the media environment we live in 
which is again, like we've had social media. We talked about that last week, but I think about like going back and looking at like Fox news and the way that it sort of shifts after September 11th as well. The rhetoric of like clash of civilizations and it's us versus them. And, you know, before it's not that Fox news was particularly good, but it was, you know, Bill Clinton's bad. We don't like him sort of stuff. And, and the, the sort of language and the, the approach feels like it changes, um, afterwards as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it really is like the, the, the world we live in, the rhetorical world we live in, the political world we live in, the, it, 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 it is all, um, it feels, I mean, again, I don't want to oversimplify it. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it, but it feels like we could not be where we are now without September 11th. Yeah, I, uh, no, I think that's, that's right. That, that history is all tied together. And then, so then it raises this question, okay, if this is the moment we're in right now, how do you respond to that, right? So we think about how did we respond to Islamic extremism? Uh, we try to do that through violence, right? We try to squash that those enemies. So if you're the United States government or, you know, a lot of, lot of governments that are dealing with far-right extremism, how do you deal with that threat? Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think violence probably is not the right answer. But how do you bring that group back to moderation? I think that's a that's a real challenge as well in terms of, you know, I think it also connects to our initial topic, right? You've got to find ways of pulling people back into being loyal dem- Democrats, you know, dem- yeah. loyal supporters of democracy uh, and, and drifting away from the extremism, the conspiracy theory, the violence, all of those things. Right. That's that's the challenge. Have you heard the this is a, an analogy that I used in class. Have you heard the like drain the swamp versus swap mosquitoes analogy at all? Has this, so no, so no. I've, I've heard people when they talk about like fighting. So going back to the war on terror, fighting terrorism, you know, the analogy is like, if, if you live on a piece of property where there's you know marshy swampy land um, and you have a mosquito problem, you can spend your entire day swatting mosquitoes and the problem is never going to go away unless you address the underlying cause. Right. Um, and similarly, if you just wade out into the marsh without putting on mosquito repellent, you're going to get eaten alive as well. So the idea is like, you have to do Mm. both. Right. But it felt like after September 11th, we spent way more effort on swatting mosquitoes, right. On fighting terrorism, you know, combating terrorism. We still live in a post nine 11 world in which, you know, you have to take your shoes off at the airport and all of this. And we didn't do enough to address the the underlying causes. And, and that's the harder thing, right? So that means like looking at the sort of origins of, you know, uh, you know, at the time, you know, Islamic extremism. And it had to do with, you know, dictatorships and economic development and all sorts of other things that were kind of at the root of that. Um, and I think about that in terms of, you know, if you're talking about like combating extremism in the US, it's the same thing, right? Like we can, again, we can prosecute as many proud boys as we want. And that is a good thing to do. It is the right thing to do. But unless you address the underlying causes, the problem's not going to go away. And that's back to this idea of ineffective governance. If, if people yeah, believe yeah. that government isn't working for them, that it's corrupt and all of that, then you're still going to have this kind of the, the success of these kind of populist movements. Um, and, and so it, you know, it's back to this idea again of, of figuring out ways to make government better, more responsive, more democratic. And, and that's a tough, tough challenge, but it's, we, we, We've got to do it. That's the only way to actually move forward on on a on you know the the a situation like like the one you were talking about. It's it's really interesting to to kind of see these events because you know initially 
I, I wasn't sold on the connection, but the more you think about the way in which this history is played out, it absolutely does. And it, it impacts, as you said, the think about how you move forward. I love that. The Swamp Thing is really, really thoughtful. Yeah. So um, maybe that's a good place to wrap up. Yeah. So uh, do you want to remind everybody how to stay connected? Yeah, so the the politicslab.com is is the the webpage. You can go there. You can read um, the the article that uh, Bill was referencing by Cynthia Miller Idris on on this the tie between September 11th and our current dysfunctions. The uh, the climate change article from Foreign Affairs, and then that Levitsky and Zablat piece from the I think it was New York Times. Um, all of those, yes. as well as some others. There's a really interesting piece from I don't remember if it's New York Times or Washington Post that that walks through the Libya flooding with like pictures, and you can see the extent of the damage. So. All of that's linked on our webpage, um, and you can find that at thepoliticslab.com. That's fantastic, Bill. All right, I will see you next week. See you later, Bill. Bye, Bill. Bye.